This is the Let's Talk Startups podcast, hosted by myself, Nergis, and my co-founder, Demos. As you know, this series is a celebration of startups from across the globe, working hard to disrupt things in a bunch of different sectors. We're here to shine a light on their inspiring stories and grab their insights to share with you all. We hope they can inspire and teach you something to help you in your journey. Today, we've been chatting with Eric Nikolai, the founder of Workspace 365. This solution helps to bring a whole host of work functionalities together in one smart platform, making life incredibly easier for employees everywhere. What's not to love about that? But we're challenging Eric on what makes this platform different from the other solutions out there. Is it really so innovative? Eric's business is set across two countries, the Netherlands and the UK, and that presents quite a number of challenges that we're looking to drill into. How do you manage your team? how to keep everything running smoothly, and for Eric personally, how does he keep a healthy work-life balance? And as usual, we have a fun quiz planned for Eric. Let's see how well he knows the differences between the Netherlands and the UK. Stay tuned for our conversation with Eric Nikolai, founder of Workspace 365. Eric, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you today? Doing good. I just shared an introduction. I just came back from a week of holidays, so like uh, I still feel the holiday vibe, so <laughs> can't be better. Fabulous. So we've caught you in a relaxed, uh, you know, zen-like mode to have a great conversation then, I guess. <laughs> 100%. So for me, holiday is always about reading books. And uh, so when I'm going on holiday, I just try to read the full books. So uh, so normally during the week, I listen to my blinks, like the 15-minute books. And I, sh- I save them for the holiday. We can read the whole book. So it's actually some final reading time. Fabulous. Fabulous. Very good. So before we get started then, what were the four books? Titles. The four titles? Yeah. Um, the one I... Listen, I, I listened to and wanted to read was Amp It Up. Uh, it's about, let's say, how you organize your business if you want to grow faster. Um, I read The Infinite Game from Simon Sinek. Um, and the one thing I was doing for myself, more personal finding, was Find Your Why. Um, so I read the book Start With Why, I think 10, 15 years ago, but it just came out. And I think the execution phase is like, how do you, can you find your why for yourself? Those are people in the organization that was really, uh, yeah, I opened it. And well, I, I did read one pleasure book from David Bodacci, which is my guilty pleasure. I read every single one of them. Uh, I had one on my uh, to, to read list uh, as it comes out with one or two books a year. So I had one book to read for fun. Very good. Very good. Okay, then. So... Eric, let's start off with um, Workspace 365. Now, people listening in may hear that and think, isn't that similar to Office 365, which obviously it's not, or Microsoft 365, whatever you want to call it. It's not. So just give us a, a quick elevator pitch, really, I guess, on what Workspace 365 is. Yeah, sure. So with Workspace 365, we want to improve the whole employee experience digitally. Um, so our purpose is to simplify everything. Um, we found uh, 13 years ago when we started the company that many employees experience a lot of complexity uh, in the uh, say digital environment and like how to work with software, how to access the software. So our goal is really to simplify everything, bring everything together into a single starting point. Um, and yes, we have a close integration with Microsoft 365. That's why we choose the name. Um, but it's just really about bringing everything together you need to get your job done. Okay. Now, I know we've been speaking about this actually quite a bit with founders uh, recently, I guess, um, around, you know, products, 
prices and stuff like that. And it's certainly now the way things have become, there's a, obviously a lot of competitors in, in lots of different sectors. Um, and it's not always just about price, is it? I mean, ultimately, it is about the customer experience, the customer journey. Um, how are you guys working on that with what you're doing? Yeah, so I think there are two elements, right? So it's just a pricing strategy with regards to your product. Uh, and there is a value in your product. So how can you express the value? So let's start with the first element. Um, so one trend we see in the market is unbundling. Um, so many software products used to have, let's say, bronze, silver, gold, uh, or they use different namings. Uh, everything was like packets one, two, three, and a bit of upsell. Uh, and one thing you see more and more in the market and trend we're following as well is that it's about unbundling. So give people what they actually want and, and allow them to pay for what they want rather than uh, so making them pay for something they don't want. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the unbundling trend uh, is something that is forced by the customers. Uh, but I think it's more or less a value for money conversation uh, rather than just paying for what you're not using. I think the second element about value is that many products talk about the cost of the product. Uh, I think mm -hmm. it's it's about how can you translate productivity savings, what's the value of time saved or, or productivity gained uh, for an employee or for an organization, right? So if we can save four hours a week per employee, what's the value of four hours, right? So that might differ per country. I think talking about time saved is very different than money spent. Uh, and I think being able to express the value from your product about the results you're delivering rather than the cost that customers is paying, I think that is vital in, in creating value for your product. Yeah, agreed. Definitely. And I mean, how do you, certainly with a platform as well, um, I'm guessing it's a little bit harder with an online platform to, to do all of this stuff, right? By comparison uh, to, say, you know, a physical product or a type of service where somebody can really ex get a proper experience of something. Yeah, so I think it's, if you, if you make a price comparison, is like if you, if you compare it to food, right? So you can, you can compare a fast food restaurant with a Michelin star restaurant. They still feed you. You still pay an X amount of money for the, for, for, the, for, the, for the meal, but you can't compare the service. You can't compare the experience. So if you only talk about the, so the calories or the, so the meal itself, uh, you can't compare a fast food restaurant with a, with a Michelin star. But sometimes the purpose of a fast food restaurant doesn't serve the purpose of a Michelin star restaurant. And I think the mm -hmm. same with your product. It's about expressing the value uh, and make sure you find and explain the value well that customers that using your service expect and they actually get the service they expect. Okay, so talking about those customers then, I mean, how and where do you get your customers from? Yeah, so we work with an indirect uh, sales model, uh, meaning that we have partners as uh, many service providers that implement our platform uh, with their customers. Um, and in every country we started, we always started with an OEM approach. So we say we give our product to the MSPs uh, respectively, and we help them to build a go-to-market with our product. Um, so we go to the market in their name, right? So it becomes a partner branded workspace. And especially in new markets, that really works because you are an unknown player in new markets. And uh, we started in the UK in September 21, uh, while we are a Dutch company started in 2010. For the UK market, we were unknown, an unknown player. Uh, so starting with an OEM strategy uh, really kind of breaks the confidence barrier because people don't have to go with Workspace D5. They can just brand it as their own. 
Um, and when we get bigger in a specific market, you see the partners, they turn towards Workspace 365 branding because they then they can leverage our branding and our marketing activities in the respective country. Uh, so OEM, white labeling, really helped us to, to get to the level where we are now. And is there any plans to sort of go ever go direct consumer? Um, so we do direct touch. And direct touch means that we help customers to see the value we can deliver. Uh, but we are part of, let's say, a whole IT ecosystem. And going direct to the customer is is different than, let's say, selling it direct to the customer. Because we are many times we are part of an, an RFP or, uh, let's say, a whole, let's say, desktop proposition from the partner to the customer. Uh, so potentially we can go direct. Uh, but I think helping to build a successful channel is far more scalable than going after the customers directly. Okay, and then talking about those partners, then I guess certainly you mentioned about being new here in the UK. How did you go about finding partners? Was it outreach on your behalf, or was it people approaching you from the UK? Uh, a bit of both, to be very honest. Um, so we had from the Netherlands, we were still let's say one hundred percent Dutch company. We already had some partners in Norway, New Zealand, Australia, and the UK. Um, and for us, that's the UK and the US are just two critical markets to be present. Um, and we wanted to have a local team with local knowledge for the culture and the country uh, to support our partners. Um, so that was a starting point. So, yes, we need to have an, a, a local office in the UK. So we picked Manchester as the best location for us to be in uh, regards to connectivity, access to talent. And then we really got about okay, what type of partners do we want to work with? So we made a list of 200 partners. We think they fit our criteria. Uh, and we just started doing very targeted outreach, saying we think you are the right line to partner for us. Uh, this is what we can offer. This is what we want to, to help you with. Uh, do you see that's a merit in the conversation? And I think that's uh, the starting point for us to be very targeted rather than to go after everyone. Yeah, very good feedback. Um, now, again, over the last couple of years, remote working, as we all know, has become you know, massively important with what we do, which I think, I'm guessing it would be a fantastic uh, thing for your business. But equally, I guess the flip side of that is that potentially uh, more competition. Has that been the case? Has there been a lot more competitors come out over the last couple of years in this space? No. So to be very honest, I think when we started, it was just uh, if you think, make a comparison with, let's say, we make pies, let's say just more people start making pies. But if the appetite grows, then people eat more pie, right? So the same for us, like if digital working becomes a trend, there's more need to help their employees to kind of make them, uh, allow them to work remotely. Uh, so for us, the trend from COVID and beyond really helped to have customer conversation about, okay, what do we need to facilitate our employees with? Uh, and yes, there is competition, but I think it's, it's not right to not have competition. Uh, I think the way we approach things is not about um, looking at the competitors, like how can we help our customers to simplify and to streamline the employee experience? And then if other people can do the same, it's up to the customer to compare what's the challenge, uh, what they want to solve, and who can help them best. And if we're not the right company for them, I'd rather not even start with them. I like that approach. Confident, I like it. <laughs> Eric, I'm going to take you in a different direction um, and sort of find out a bit more about the operational side of of your business and that sort of day-to-day um running of things um you mentioned obviously you've got two offices um you know in the netherlands and in the uk um and obviously the uk sort of i guess is probably more of that startup business having just been launched uh what did you say two, about two years ago so i guess talk us through that sort of how does that work in terms of managing two sites two locations two countries what does that look like 
Yeah, I think we have to go one step back because when we started the company uh, from the very beginning, we started with a nearshore office in the Ukraine to help us develop our product. Uh, so while this stopped uh, four years ago, um, I think having an international blend of colleagues was already part of our company. Okay. So it was not we had to switch from talking Dutch to talking English, yeah. which was really helpful. Of course, we had some, some procedures that had to change. I think the biggest mistake um, we made in the beginning was underestimating two things. It's the culture and it's, a, it's the market differences, right? So what we, where we are now is that we're trying to take the UK approach as a complete startup. So every time we hear something from a partner, so should we change the contract with this? Should we change the approach with this? So not thinking about what we already have done, already learned from the Dutch market or the Norwegian market or any other market. Like what do we learn from the UK partners which we incorporate in the UK operations? And, and you have to... Th- take the startup approach in regards to we are new. We are not knowing anything about the market and and we just start from scratch, which is uh, a challenge because in the Netherlands, people feel we are becoming an established brand. Customers know us, partners know us, and then you start from nothing, uh, which I found very, um, yeah, tempting in a positive way because I really got the energy from, let's say, do it again. Um, Every time we hear something from a partner or a customer say, yeah, we can change this, we can change this, and we can try this again. Um, but the culture is more than just a company culture. So we found that the focus on having the right core values defined and incorporated in the company became more and more critical. So before the core values were good to have. And I think after having the UK office, we felt that core values really ties everything together. Uh, this is bigger than just the difference between the Netherlands and, and the UK. But the, the, the Dutch people are known to be very direct um, and while we should not hide behind the fact I'm Dutch, that's why I'm direct. I think the way we have a conversation is different. And I think the first year of being in the UK, we put a lot of focus on how do we have conversations? Like, what do I mean? And if I'm not saying it, it's actually not said, or do I say something else that I actually mean? But just expressing how we behave, how we, how we, how we communicate, and also what do we expect from employees? And I think... If I look at the growth from our team in the UK, we see a lot of, let's say, self-initiative now where people think, hey, this is something I can do differently. I try this, I try this. Not asking for approval for every single step, but just take initiative. And that change in the UK team has been massive. And I see a complete different team now than, than how we started. And I think that's the biggest factor of just working together, building on trust, building on relationships. And it's okay to fail, right? So uh, f- failure is part of the solution. And if you don't fail, you don't make any progress. And I think having that confidence uh, as an employee of Verse 55, that you can make mistakes, uh, that ex- actually mistakes are being rewarded with, uh, just try again. And I think that was just something completely new. I'm not going to say it's going to be the same for everyone in the UK. I think the culture we had in the Netherlands, which I see with more Dutch companies, is there is just more openness about trying, failing, doing, than, than just hiding behind your mistakes. Seems like we have a, a lot to learn, but I think that's a valid point as well. And obviously that's part of startup journey, isn't it? To be able to confidently take those mistakes and you know, what do you do? Do you, um, how do you respond to them to take you forward? Um, you said something very interesting there, Eric, um, about treating then the UK as a startup business and sort of almost like putting all the knowledge and that established brand to one side in order for that to succeed then. Um, and what I found interesting was the fact that you're sort of, you know, I guess it's probably the entrepreneurial spirit of, yeah, bring it on, rather than, oh my gosh, starting from scratch. Um, do you think that's 
I mean, clearly you found that to be then the best way to tackle it, to just treat it as a almost like a new business rather than an extension of what you're doing in the Netherlands? Yeah, to be very honest, I don't think there is a best way. I think there is the only way. So, uh, because if you're if you rely on the things you already know, you you probably make assumptions, and I think assumptions are only true if they're validated. So the only thing we're doing is trying to seek validations from the partners and customers that if what we think is true, and uh, it's just constantly validation and just trying to avoid making assumptions. Um, so for me, it's not the best way. It's just the only way is just taking it as an as a startup. Um, and trying to be independent. Uh, so one of the initiatives from last year is to make the UK in an independent team with all the, let's say, the different uh, knowledge areas like support, technical success, customer success, all present in the UK team. Uh, but that's something shifted in our direction because we also realized that if you want to make the UK independent, you also say, that, okay, we don't connect as a team. We build two separate teams. Um, so one thing we're doing now is we're trying to blend the teams, let's say marketing with marketing, um, growth or sales with sales. Um, so there is a lot of, let's say, connectivity between the different uh, teams. So we exchange knowledge, but we still operate in different countries. My question is how? How do you blend two teams together? And, you know, if they're remotely based as well, how does that work? Yeah, so one thing we do every year is just make sure we bring everyone from the different countries to the Netherlands. Um, so we have one week where everyone is in the office. Um, I try to be in the UK, let's say, every other other week or every three weeks. Uh, and every quarter, we bring everyone from the UK to the Netherlands. Uh, because being able to spend time with your colleagues, just have lunch, have coffee, uh, go for a beer, that's much bigger than just only talk about work. And if you spend time via Teams or Zoom, whatever tools you're using, and most of the time it's just about work. Um, and I think it's, it's more important to talk about other things than just work because there is so much more that uh, makes your colleagues uh, than talk about results or KPIs or anything else. And finally, do you have any sort of tips about productivity then? Because obviously I respect the fact that you sort of need to treat them as isolated and, and sort of independent businesses in terms of day to day, but then the need to connect those teams together somehow. How does that affect productivity good or bad and what sort of tips could you share about making sure everyone's working in the best way possible yeah so one thing and it's not so much about mingling uh, the uk and the netherlands it's more about building trust in the team uh, we start a bit in uh, um, with a tool the name is fika uh, fika is a software tool which is meant to build trust in teams so every weekly every monthly uh, meeting. So we have a weekly, monthly, quarterly structure where we, in the weekly, we discuss the coming week. In the monthly, we review in the past month and we plan for the coming month. In the quarterly, we do the quarterly planning. So that's something we do at the whole company, right? On the management level and a team level. And with Fika, we start the meeting with sometimes a brutally honest question uh, or you have to build a story. It's not about work, it's about you. And I think starting the meeting with something else and just work, talk about, let's say, family or your superpower or something you experienced over the weekend really kind of opens up people about how they feel or how they behavior. And I think uh, a, a few weeks ago, the FICA was about uh, share one of your frustrations in the team. And without this question, this, this kind of frustration will never came to surface. And I think we had a very honest conversation about something that could, could improve, about the lack of information they received from the Dutch colleagues. And I think it was just about having a platform to share your frustrations without being judged. 
Uh, and I think having uh, brutally honest conversations together uh, to share feedback uh, and also in the monthly, we just recap about your highs, your lows, your learnings. Um, so you, you, you kind of the ones you want to improve. We have a section we call start and stop doing. So what are we doing that we should not doing it, should not do anymore? Or what are the things we're not doing? We start, should start doing. And I think having those type of conversations really helps to build the team and it really helps to sit together about uh, how can you help each other. And I think one of the key things in the UK team, we don't have individual targets. We just have a team goal per quarter uh, about the things we have to do. Um, and then you see that people from growth and marketing, we all help each other to make sure uh, we accomplish our tasks per quarter rather than just going for individual targets and being able to, you're successful. It's not about you. It's about the team. It's about the company and the results we hope to see. Eric, the brutal honesty, I mean, it's approach that, you know, we love with Negus and I have always been like that as well. Um, how do you find when... You know, you're having those honest conversations with team members and maybe they're honest to bring something like feedback, their frustrations. But then equally, if you want to be honest and you know, go back to them with something that maybe they don't want to hear, how do they, t- how, how do they take it? Hmm. I think if you're honest... Uh, you just you, you're telling the truth. There's nothing you, there's no reason to hide to say anything different. And if the intention to help them to become a better person or a better individual or a better employee, I think I'm only doing them a favor if I give them feedback because they can improve themselves. Um, so we have a structure we call the person success meetings, and the person success meeting is something you have every single month. Uh, before the meeting, you fill in a, a form about your past month your personal, how you feel, things are going well, the improvements for yourself. And it, most often it's a very honest conversation. And it's also about competences, right? So and sometimes in the personal success meeting, there are topics about promises about past month that didn't actually happen. And it's not about why didn't you do it? So what, what, what kind of stopped you not doing it? And most often there was actually something else what needs to be done, why there was no let's say, time for the rest. So I don't think it's intentional that people not uh, allow them to improve themselves or focus on something else. There's always something in the middle. So the only thing I can do is point it out and help them to solve it. And I don't think it's it's done intentionally or, or done on purpose why uh, people are not improving or the results are not there. There's just maybe a blockage and I can only facilitate and removing the blockage. Okay. Now, you obviously, on, on that note, I mean, you, you're obviously there to help your team and all these kind of things. Flipping it on the other side, yourself as a founder with your own frustrations and stuff like that, um, do you find that, because obviously some of those things you can't share with your team, right, as a founder, do you find that difficult at times? Do you find it sometimes lonely being a founder at, You know, with those kinds of issues? And if you do, how do you get around them? Yeah, so we started the company together. I think that really helps in sometimes having the difficult conversations uh, with your business partner. Uh, to, be, to be honest, I can have a very honest conversation with my wife as well at home. So I don't feel lonely as a founder about uh, say difficult topics. Uh, but in regards to the team, I think we have very open conversations. For example, if you have a very bad quarter, uh, we talk about it. Uh, what can we do together? And I think the biggest mistake founders do is that they keep the tough reality for themselves and only share the good news. And, and then people think everything is going well. But if some things are not going well, the only thing you can do is express it with the team and allow other people to help you solve it. So I'm not trying to play the positive game in regards to results or team or spirit. Uh, I'm just trying to be honest. And I think 
if you're honest, people can help, right? So at the end of the day, the reason why you work for a company is should be much bigger than just a paycheck. It should be about the, the results you want to see. And if you don't allow people to help you, what's the point of working there? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, the, the certainly the positive side, when you're transparent on, transparent on the positive side, I see huge benefits on that. But just on the, on the negative side, do you find that, you know, there's only so much you can share on the negative side or you just literally brutally open and honest? Because do, do you not find that if you're too honest on the negative side that maybe it can demotivate a team or maybe, you know, maybe this team get a bit worried if things are too negative or does that not even... <laughs> No, so I, th- I think a, g- a good way to explain this is every month uh, we have a company meeting. Uh, that's normally the second Friday of the month. Uh, we start at four and everyone from the company joins. It's recorded, so if you can't join, you can watch it back. But during the company meeting, uh, we talk about uh, anniversaries. So who's been in the company for an X amount of years? We try to incorporate the story about, the, let's say, the, the recent accomplishments for the company. We talk about KPIs, and KPIs are just black and white, right? So they're either green or red. Uh, but if they're red, they're red. And if they're green, they're green. Um, so we talk about results and what we're doing to change directions if needed. And sometimes, for example, we have one KPI, which is the positive, that is the deficit between cash in and cash out. And if this is something we manage for to get to break even, for example, I'm trying to explain the value of getting to break even. And I'm trying to put it into perspective that if it's like a household, if you make £2,000 a month, but you spend 2500 you need to have at least 500 of savings to make up for the loss. So I'm trying to make it very clear to put company perspective into a personal perspective because a business is nothing different than a household. Um, you only go on holiday if they have the money for it or you lend money for it and then you have to pay it back, right? So a business is just a big family in regards to a household and how you run finances. But I think explaining it in the right proportion uh, with the right narrative, I think it's critical because then people can explain why, why you make certain decisions. So let's say you want to go for break even. Uh, that's why you could you've, you cut down to the budget. That means you have to explain why you're trying to save money on X, Y, and Z. But if you're not explaining it, people get worried. So I think the, the more open you are, uh, bit putting it in perspective, why we're doing it and, and how much this means to the company, what does it mean to you and how you can help. I think it only helps, to be very honest. I don't see that sharing too much can be an issue. I think the only thing that can be an issue is that if you don't work on the directions together, right? So if you don't give clear directions where we're going and the strategy is not clear, I think that's the only thing people are starting to get worried because then they feel like I'm running around the circles without a proper destination. All right, okay. Okay, so just before we move on, then um, I want to talk just about yourself personally as well. You, you know, we touched on right at the outset. You know, you've had your book reading on your little holiday. Um, what other things do you, you know, what does your schedule look like day to day? <laughs> okay, so um, I know that's a crazy question. I know, no, no, I know so things change I, every day. I have, but. No, I have no secrets. So I, I'm married. I have three young kids: one of seven, six, and four. Um, so at home it's busy. Um, I work. My wife works full time as well, so we balance it together. Um, so I try to do CrossFit four or five times a week. Um, depends oh, wow. on either early morning or end of day. Uh, I, I like the early mornings, um, but for me, it just it's, it's key to kind of get my mind on something. So if I go to the gym by myself, 
I don't feel disconnected. But if I go to a CrossFit class of an hour, you don't bring your phone, you don't bring, do anything. It's only just working out. And it can be a, a, a short workout, it can be a power class. It's just about disconnecting and just working on your mental, so your physical rather than, than being challenged mentally. Uh, I think this, this, this balance uh, for me is not about being strong or, or, or let's say, or being a bodybuilder. It's about being fit. And when I feel physically fit, I'm mentally in a much better position. So the balance for my week is normally, let's say, CrossFit is a big part of it, or just working out. Um, the UK is a big element of my week, right? So tomorrow I'm going to the UK uh, till Thursday evening. So that's a two-day uh, trip. Uh, sometimes I do Wednesday morning in, evening out. But I find it a bit too much in a rush uh, for, for the UK team. It's just for myself, it's okay. Uh, but just being coming in and coming out on the same day was a bit much. So trying to balance the traveling uh, with being sporty. Okay, so sticking with the, with the I guess, the fitness uh, regime, certainly with travel in the mix as well and busy days, diet and nutrition. And this isn't a, um, a nutritional show of any kind, but just curious as to, you know, the kind of things that founders get up to. So nutritionally, is that a, a challenge food-wise? Are you eating well during the day and stuff or is that not? So n- nutrition is very simple for me because during the week I, I always eat the same. So uh, that's just a very fixed uh, schedule. Uh, the weekends I just let go and I enjoy the wine and the food and everything else. Uh, but during the week, it's a very strict, I don't say rigid, but it's a very strict because I always eat the same. I just have a prep meal for lunch and my yogurt in the morning. And yeah, so for me, I, I've been in different shapes uh, weight-wise. I've been traveling for a very long time and then you do nothing rather than just drinking. And I've been in different places where I didn't feel fit, especially when my kids were a bit younger. Uh, you get into being a new parent and you let go of going to the gym because you feel like you're a parent and then everything is around and surrounded with either your, 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 your daughter or your son. And I think I, it took me some time to realize that I can only be the best uh, founder, the best CEO, the best colleague and the best father if I'm taking care of myself. Um, so for the last five, six years, I've been very strict to working out uh, and paying attention to my nutrition because if only thing if I'm just the best version of me is a healthy and fit me. Yeah, credit to you for that, Eric, for sure. And I mean, now knowing how you uh, feel now over a four or five year period, do you think you could ever go back to not sort of focusing on those things for the, for the benefit of your business? No. No, so to be very honest, when COVID started in the Netherlands, uh, they closed the gyms. And I realized that if they closed the gym, everyone would just get, that's a break and from, from, the, from the workout routine. Uh, so we started organizing boot camps in the office. And every Thursday, we still have boot camps in the office. So we have an, a trainer coming to the office. And we have a group sometimes of 15, 20 people working out for an hour together. Um, I think Saturday, the 23rd of September, we go, we join Mudmasters with the company. I think we have like 30 colleagues joining the Mudmaster run. Um, so for me, it's not about, let's say, have, uh, let's say doing it for the colleagues, it's just to pay for the, for the workout, but just make sure we are in the rhythm of, let's say, being fit is actually something we value. And I have very, a lot of examples where actually people for the first time joined the boot camp on the Thursday and then they started going to the gym themselves afterwards. So for me, it's about this showing how valuable being fit is to you as an individual for, for, for your own life, but also for, for your, say, for your working life. Excellent. So boot camps in the office. I'm busy taking <laughs> notes over here, so I need to take a leaf out of your book, Eric. <laughs> 
inspiring stuff. Um, I'm going to sort of close this conversation with, um, I mean, I know you listen to this show, so you're probably expecting some sort of curveball at the end. I'm going to have a bit of fun with you. Um, and I have a quiz in front of me um, because you are a busy founder and you're managing two offices in two very different countries. Um, we want to find out how well you know the difference between the Netherlands and the UK um, and put that to the test. <laughs> You ready? Excellent. Look forward to it. There's a smile. Yeah. I don't know whether it's a nervous More smile ready. or... Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so, Eric, let's start off with... Um... Guinness or Heineken? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, what is the most popular food in the and, like, obvious, but I'm going to go for kind of... I mean, tricky... These are tr- potentially tricky questions, but let's see. Um, okay. What country has a higher population density, do you think? Netherlands. The Netherlands? Yeah, yeah you're right. 450 people per square feet, a kilometer versus 277 for the UK. Very good. Good start. Okay. Um, which country has a higher life expectancy? Would you say? I will say the Netherlands. Any reason why? And I think the UK will beat us in 10 years. <laughs> To be honest with you, the figures I have here are very close, but it is the Netherlands, but only by about a year, two years. So, yeah, you're right. Bang on. Um, Which country has a higher unemployment rate? The Netherlands or the UK? Uh, So it's 45 million versus 27, 60. I will say the UK. He's good, huh? Yeah, it is. Uh, Marginally. I've got here 3.5% for the Netherlands and 3.8% for the UK. Very good, Eric. I'm impressed. Um, which country has a higher minimum wage? The Netherlands. Oh, I'm afraid it's the UK. I've, I've, my calculations are in pounds. So £8.91 for the UK versus £8.30 for the Netherlands. Okay. So, yeah, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, which country has a higher tax rate? Hmm. I know we pay for both. Um, I think it's uh, depends on how you look at it, but I think overall, if you incorporate all the taxes, the Netherlands is more expensive. Depends on what angle you look at it. So, if you edit everything together, it's the Netherlands. It is the Netherlands, thirty-eight percent versus a twenty percent for the UK, which I found quite interesting. Yeah, but even the thirty-eight percent is not everything. But uh, we can talk about it later. <laughs> Break it up, yeah. Um, which country <laughs> has a higher number of Nobel Prize winners? The UK. No, it's actually, actually, sorry. Yeah, it is the UK. Apologies. Yeah, UK. 129 versus 17 for the Netherlands, which I yeah. found was quite, quite something. Um, which country has a higher number of Olympic medals? Hmm. <laughs> so we have our ice skating, right? So uh, <laughs> speed skating, that's the biggest winner of the, of the medals. So... Um, yeah, I, I have to say the UK, but I think we are pretty close. It is the UK, but I've got her 807 versus 232. That's quite mm. a difference, right? Not even close. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and finally, I mean, this is a controversial one, so make of this question what you will. But apparently, according to the survey, what, which country has a higher percentage of people who trust their government? Controversial. This could probably be a spin-off conversation, I think. But what do you reckon? I think 
that after Brexit, a lot of things change. So I, w- I have to say the Netherlands. Here's the Netherlands. Any ideas of percentage, according to this survey? What would you say? I think 37, 38%. Apparently 60% of the Dutch folk trust their government versus only 30% here in the UK, which is uh, a little concerning. <laughs> yeah, that's the hard thing about politics, right? So we can do so much things right, or only people remember things we do wrong. Sadly so, yeah. Very good, though. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show today and being brutally honest with your answers and the discussion today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. To be honest, I enjoyed listening to many of the episodes. I'm not sure if you're going to enjoy my episode as much as I enjoyed the others, but <laughs> I leave it to the to the aside. But I, I really enjoyed the other podcast you recorded. I think what you're doing for for the community is very valuable. Uh, just having different angles of the conversation. I think the more open conversation we have, uh, the better we are. Thank you so much. Absolutely. No, and and great feedback. Thank you very much. Um, But obviously for for every startup founder that we have on and every, you know, conversation that we have, what's interesting to DBOS and I, even after all this time, is every conversation is so different. And we could easily ask the same questions every single time we talk, but we'll get different answers and a different story and different insights. And I guess that's the beauty of, of the business world and startup world, right? 100%. Thanks so, so, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Good stuff. No, thank you very much for, for joining us. And um, thanks to everyone listening today. Um, did you enjoy this conversation as much as we did? Uh, tell us what you thought and get in touch if you'd like to get yourself and your startup involved in our podcast. Um, DBoss and I love chatting with founders every single day. So uh, don't be shy. Drop us a message. Uh, we'd love to chat with you very soon. Um, till then, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any other episodes that we release. And uh, we'll be back very soon. So take care and bye for now.